making art like this is practical. You, you know, there's this romantic idea of artists and this and that, but basically you have that, but then you have to make it. Hello, and welcome to Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas, also known as AI. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with Carol Mickett and Robert Stackhouse, also known as Mickett Stackhouse. And I want to start by uh, asking you about that. What is Mickett Stackhouse? Well, we formed uh, Mickett Stackhouse Studio in order to have a company to represent the work we do. So it combines our last names in alphabetical order, and it represents our collaboration. Well, it, it, it differentiates, I mean, who, who we were and who we are, uh, in that we're in Mickett Stackhouse Studio, and uh, we are a different entity than, than uh, before we knew each other. We came together, we uh, started forming this collaboration, and then the collaboration led to projects and results, and that led to an identity of who we are now as opposed to who we were. Right. So when people who might not know your work think make it Stackhouse, you know, there's plenty of companies that have two names. Marshall Fields comes to my mind. I grew it up in Chicago and I imagined there's a Mr. Marshall or a Mrs. Marshall and a Mr. Fields. And, you know, maybe they get together once in a while and make plans and maybe they each have different expertise, but they're completely separate individuals. Whereas in your case, you work very closely together, and the ideas and the artwork seem to come from the collaboration. Well, we do come from different backgrounds. So even though I started out as an undergraduate, as an art major, I became much more involved in academics. So I ended up getting a PhD in philosophy and becoming a philosophy professor. So I have this long history of being much more involved in conceptual things and intellectual things. But then also I ended up doing radio and TV and theater and also visual arts. So I do have a different background, but one of the things that I really developed, especially in um, being involved very much in feminist philosophy and feminist organizations, was the idea of collaboration. And women, it's been shown, have this whole thing about collaboration. If you look at the family, it's a very collaborative organization where women really shine in that collaboration. And as you see the way businesses have evolved and more women getting involved, there's a whole idea of working together and the idea of the team. And I think women have a lot to do with that. So when we came together, um, I think that the idea of collaborating could work. It also could work because both of us had established ourselves very strongly and had formed a strong identity. So um, the idea of collaborating then could be on an equal basis instead of one being in charge and the other not. Well, my history is, is I'm very different than Carol. Is that I was a, a, a painting student from day one in, in college and uh, um, continued that uh, as, a, as a studio painter for a number of years and then uh, became a studio sculptor. But doing sculpture in New York City at the time in Soho meant that I did sculpture in, 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 in America. 
you know, there's a difference between New York City and America. So out in America, we, we did a lot of sculpture projects. There was a, in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of uh, civic funded projects and they would, they would entail really um, six months of design in my studio in New York and then I would arrive on site and we would do these large 100, 200 foot projects uh, in about 10 days. And that required a lot of collaboration with people on the ground in wherever it was that I was going. And then working with the volunteers, usually students, usually or, or volunteers, sometimes they were paid employees. But um, there, an awful lot of uh, collaborative effort had to go into that. In other words, the project was so big and done, being done in such a short period of time that uh, I, I always used to joke that whoever has the chainsaw has the final decision. Uh, so, so, you know, there was a, a, you know, a kind of an equalizer. I wasn't the, you know, I wasn't the egotistical artist that had to have it just my way, that these people were going to live with it after I left. I got on a plane and left after 10 days. So, so my being able to, you know, ease into being a collaborative artist is, wasn't so easy. <laughs> you know, if change was easy, we would all change all the time, but it, it but being able to, Transform from being that individual solo type of artist. Uh, I was I was really helped by by the kind of work I did, which was working with others uh, and and collaborate. I also did a lot of prints with master printers, and you have to you have to give and take with that master printer. They're not there to do just follow orders. They they offer uh, suggestions as well. So fit in. So one of the things that's interesting about this is that in the last few years, there's been a whole um, talk about art of engagement and doing things with artists with the community. What's interesting about that is that Robert's early work was exactly that. And he has stories about building a big sculpture in Cleveland with all of these children that would come out and work with him play hooky play hooky <laughs> and the community supporting it and all other ways. and then when we started collaborating it was the same way we did these big projects with lots of volunteers that's exactly was the idea in that we would go to these places we'd be asked in and instead of just going in and delivering a sculpture and putting it down we would build it there, we would live there, we would engage with the community so that when we left, the ownership was theirs, even though our name was on it. I mean, we thought of it as our sculpture, but yet the community really had made it with us. So it wasn't a sense of coming in and invading, but coming in and working with. And now people call that engagement, mm -hmm. which we love. So can you look back on a moment when you both had an aha and said, you know, we can collaborate together, we can work together, we're, our strengths really support each other and, and our ideas really support each other? Well, one of the first ahas I had goes back to the radio interview in that uh, Carol's interview was, was, uh, it was an hour-long live program. And so we had a conversation. It was a show called Art Radio. KKFI. In Kansas. <laughs> KKFI. KKFI, Kansas City. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was prepared for sort of a, 
an, an interview that, that I've had many, many times, especially as a New York artist. I mean, it was almost always the same questions and didn't matter what I answered. You know, they went to the next question. And, uh, but Carol's interview was, was very conversational. And, I, you know, coming out of that, that conversation, I felt like, you know, she's on the same page I am. I'm on the same page she is, you know, and, and it was, you know, and, and it, it wasn't the great aha moment. I don't know whether there was a great aha moment. Was there one for you uh, other than just realizing that we could work together? I mean, uh, a few years ago, we were working in the studio, and for some reason, we found that tape and played it again, and it was enjoyable to listen to. Which was the other thing that was really interesting is that this interview was enjoyable to listen to for a whole hour, you know. And uh, so, uh, you know, it, 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 it solidified, I think, a lot of our, our instincts towards each other. But um, a, a great aha moment could have been more when we were in Italy doing that print. We, we were doing a, uh, we were the, uh, artists in an international print symposium, and we we were there producing a print uh, uh, in a in a convent laundry in in Cortona, Italy, and uh, you know, very romantic and, and exciting area. Art, a lot of art around, and uh, um, I think uh, we were able to to sort of work out some of the things. And it took a while for us to work out the concept of collaboration. I remember we went to the Museum of Modern Art bookstore one day and looked for books on collaboration. We found one, <laughs> it's a beautiful book. And it, it, the, the typical artist kind of collaboration was, uh, like say Robert Motherwell would do a painting and somebody else would do a poem, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And so one page and another page. And so there are these splits of uh, you do this and you do that. And people are constantly trying to shoehorn that information out of us. Which do you, what do you do, and what do you do? All right, because they think, all right, I'm, I'm the, the visual artist and Carol's the philosopher. But it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't, it doesn't go that way all the time. We were, we were working together on projects, but we hadn't publicly announced that we were working together. Because he had a long history of being the, the artist, and I didn't. And I would know, he would know that we did it together. But one thing that did happen for me was the change is I had um, worked on some film projects. Indeed, the way we really got to know each other was I was hired to make a movie about him, short video. And so Brian Rial had asked me to consider doing a film on a ballet family in New York City. And I thought, wow. That would be really wonderful. And we had just gotten married. And we were talking about it. I was thinking who could, do, who could be the camera person and all of this. And then we had a talk and I said, you know, if I take that project, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be in New York. So why did we get married? Why are we doing this? And Why did we buy that building? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so it was a, a case of, okay. If I'm not, if I'm going to give up that project, then we have to commit to working together. If not, I'm going and I'm going to do that. So we talked about it and we realized that we work well together. As Robert said, we have the same 
aesthetic. We we're both process people instead of having a vision and doing the end product we work really with process and it allows us to go and change and and um, move on so i think for me that moment was a commitment and then before that we were dancing and figuring it out but we we did have a show at the university of georgia yes of uh, we still have the sign uh, mm -hmm. Carol Mickett and Robert Stackhouse, a collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so it was all about the print we did at, at, uh, in, Cortona. In, in Cortona, Italy. And uh, the print is signed Mickett Stackhouse. So that's the, and, and that's 2000, I think it's year 2000. 2000. So it was just after we got married. So I want to talk about your process. I know that I was at your studio and I was looking at one of your big paintings and you told me you both painted it. Yes. And so it, I had this realization that when it was signed, Mickett Stackhouse, it was because it was create, literally created. Mm -hmm. And I you know, was wondering, do you paint it at the same time? Does one person start? Or do you start at different corners? Um, how does that, how does that? Sometimes we, uh, we start at different sides. And, and work towards the middle. It depends on the type of painting it is. Sometimes uh, we, we don't work at one painting at a time. There's quite often many paintings up on the wall. We have some photographs of Carol's working on one painting, I'm working on another painting. If you come back in 20 minutes, we're maybe in different positions or we're completely off camera working on another thing. So, um, you know, it, 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 it varies considerably. We both have very different hands. You know, uh, you know what an artist calls a signature. You know, the, the, it, it's it's like handwriting. You, you make a mark, and uh, they're they're very different, and that's something we try to incorporate into our work, as much as we can. And uh, so, so yes, we do work on the same thing at the at the same time. And no painting, sculpture, print, or whatever gets finished is called finished until both of us say it is. So oftentimes, you know, one person will be working on something and the other person will sit there and say, well, I don't think that's working or, yeah, that's really good. Let's keep going in that direction. Uh, maybe we should try this. Um, so there's a dialogue that goes on with what we're doing, which is different from when you work on your own. Because when you work on your own, you have to make those choices and you have to stand back and, and say things. Um, one of the things that happens with us is we get feedback from the other person. And, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that isn't because sometimes it interrupts what you're thinking and the way you want to go. But in the long run, the trade-off's really good because there aren't many things that... An, you know, a really trusted collaborator um, can do. For example, last night we were at a poetry reading and one of the questions was, how do you know when you're finished? How do you, and their response is, well, it's good to have readers that you trust because they, they can help you um, know what works and what doesn't and when you're, you, what you've written should go out to the public. And that is exactly what we do to each other. Um, other writers, prose writers have editors. Artists have curators. 
you know, they're people who have trained eyes or trained brains or trained ears who can really sort of help you to assess. But it depends that that person has the knowledge of what you're up to. And, and in our case, we have such um, intimate knowledge of the work we do. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we, we trust each other that way. I mean, we, we also know that each other can push the other out of their comfort zone into something that's, that's more of a chance. But we, we trust that. That's exciting, I think, because uh, you don't really know what's going to happen. And uh, I, think, I think for me, deciding to become a collab collaborative artist was uh, one in which, especially making paintings in the studio, uh, the process would be to start 15 paintings and then just go from there and uh, um, do, do a lot of decision-making both in the head and just physically by, by doing something. And, and collaboratively, you have to stop and, and talk about it. You have to talk it out. And uh, uh, sometimes you don't need to because it's, it's, we're on the same wavelength if we're both you know, in the studio exactly the same time working. But even, even though we trust each other collaboratively and having that soundboard, we have some good friends that we almost always invite over. They're mm -hmm. highly uh, accomplished people, a museum director. And uh, in fact, this person gave me my first museum show back in the early 70s. So, so you know, that kind of, a, of an other to look at mm -hmm. your work sort of gives you a, a, a kind of a good... Uh, foundation of, of what you think you're doing because collaboratively we go off in different directions than, than what we thought we were going to go off mm -hmm. in and, and uh, we do it happily together rather and, and uh, you know sometimes there are, there are abrupt changes like we, we did a project in New York a big sculpture there was this big white sculpture that was room sized and we were going to put it in a. We were going to paint the the gallery white, and it had been painted black for a, a video show previous to it. But you know, conditions made it so we couldn't paint it white. So we put this white sculpture in this black background, and then we were preparing for a show uh, locally in in Sarasota, and we started decided to do some paintings of that particular sculpture. And, and my thought was, we're going to do white on black. And, and, and Carol sort of interjected immediately, said, well, the whole idea was white on white. And I'm saying, yeah, but it was white on black. So, so there's where some of that kind of dialogue... Went. We, we did, did white, white on, on white. white. <laughs> <laughs> and that led to a whole series of other things that were completely unexpected. And then the challenge of painting white on white sounds really easy, but it, it's not. I mean, it's it... Not. Uh, you know, we paint by applying layer on top of layer, so um, th that that makes for a, a, a sense of depth in whatever color we have. And the and the white really wasn't white; it was really a lot of colors making white in a way. And uh, and it led to other imagery that we never thought we would be doing. And it's some of our favorite paintings. So, I was really wonderfully surprised to find artists of international renown. Tucked away in St. Petersburg, Florida. There's probably some more of us too. Yeah. <laughs> we met in Kansas City, Missouri, and we were ready for a change. And Robert got an endowed chair at the University of Georgia, 
in Athens, Georgia, and um, I was just finishing up a project. I was finishing up the PBS um, special on the history, spe- of, Kansas, art history Kansas of art in Kansas City, but I was also doing another project, a, um, a video history of Kansas City. I went back and forth and finished that. But we needed a place to live, and we did want to move to New York City. But when we went to look at places, it was too expensive, too small. And Robert's mother lived in Gulfport. And he is an all, you know, founding charter member, charter student of USF in Tampa. So he has great ties here. And we had a sailboat here at the Harborage Marina on which we were married. And so we one day decided we would drive around and look and see if there was any place to live. I was not too keen on living here because I was still in the St. Petersburg's where you retire mode. Although one of the biggest attractions was the newspaper, which at that time was splendid. And that was a big um, asset to me. Um, So anyway, we drove around and we found this building, the one in which we own now. And Robert's always funny. Every time we go travel, it's like, oh, that would make a good studio. Oh, that would make a good studio. So, of course, we saw this and go, oh, that would make a good studio. So we eventually, in a year, were able to buy that building. And um, we'd live in it and have a studio, and we'd rent it. And I think that initially that was it. And when we were here and we'd come and stay on our sailboat, we would walk our dog downtown. And across from the MFA, there was like one coffee shop. You know, there was nothing down there. And we sat there one day and we thought, this is rather nice, isn't it? And so we slowly moved into it. It's now an incredibly different St. Petersburg. Um, The idea of artists living and working here was not on anybody's um, wavelength at that point. But we were were grateful that we were able to come and come at that time and be part of the renaissance that has happened here in St. Pete. I think um, it's a different age now, too. I I remember a show that uh, was at the Marion Arts Center of of a group of people that worked kind of collaboratively, and uh, a number of them were recent graduates from USF graduate program. But they were scattered all over the country, and they were hooked. They were hooked on the internet together, and they, it was just as if they're in the same neighborhood. So I, I you know, that, that, you know, where are international artists supposed to live, right? You, you find out. Like you know, when I was young, I had to go to New York. I mean, I lived in Washington D.C. and I was doing all right there, but I had to go to New York. I mean, you, you had to go to the Big Apple. And, and so that worked out right. But after a while, I didn't have to be there anymore because people would call you up. Almost, I mean, I, I remember I, I got invited once to a Museum of Modern Art uh, opening for artists that were in the collection. And, and I went and I was expecting to see a whole bunch of people that I knew. And I didn't because most of them moved away. <laughs> they live in other parts of the country. So, um, you know, it, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be in this, uh, 
in in the middle of it all. I mean, how many Hollywood actors live in Hollywood nowadays? You know, and and so it's it's a it's a sense that you find a place. And and what we found was a building that had to be big downtown on the water. And, uh, you know, in, in, in Florida, which neither one of us ever thought we'd end up in again, you know, like I'd, I'd left it before, you know, saying, I'll, you know, don't let the door, you know, hit you in the rear end when you leave uh, in order to go north and, and, and deal with it. We're both northerners, by the way. She's from New Jersey. I'm from New York City. So we have that kind of an attraction. And we're saying, what are we doing here in the middle of summer? You know, and, and you know, but it, it's also that building is a great place to work and we can work out of here. You know, we can work from here uh, as well as here. Well, you also mentioned going to a poetry reading last night. So it struck in my mind that this community has a lot to offer creative people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this was a poetry reading at the Dali. Helen Wallace was, it's her series. Helen Wallace is the poet laureate of St. Petersburg. She's inviting different poets in. That's a new series. To have that quality, the Dali is making this a very special thing. And I think that that's one of the um, things about St. Petersburg that has changed, is that you know, one of the things about the arts is that there are all sorts of levels of arts. And in a town that's an art town, you need all these levels. And what St. Petersburg is doing is it's spreading out its levels. So you can really find, you know, professional level art. You can find sort of middle level art and you can find beginning art and children's art. And that's a, that dynamic is really important because unless you have the professionals, like in sports, or, you know, we often talk, people ask us about that. I said, you, know, you look at the Olympics, you watch the Olympics because they're the top people, and then that inspires you to do better. So you want the people who are really professional, who have been recognized, who have gone through all the gatekeepers, to to be raise the bar and then it raises everybody up and and you want that process of dynamic you want the children you want people who are the amateurs you want people who are trying to be more than that and then you want people who are established and you want this conversation to go on and, and it's a it's a slow process of this uh, sort of uh, creating these different uh layers in a way, because I, I think when we first came here, and when I knew it from visiting my mom, that, that art in the area was, if, if you said you were an artist, you were an artist, you know, and, and it was, it, it was, there was no hire, you know, there was no, somebody's been doing this all their life, or somebody just started doing this two days ago, they're still all classified as artists, and the, it, it's not the artist that, that, that changes, it's the attitude in the, in, in the community. And and we went through a lot of well we'll put some money into it because it's good for the children, right? And it it took a long time for the say an institution like the Dali to convince the community that culture brings dollars. You know, living in New York City, you know, I understood and and they talked about it in New York City a lot that that uh, 
I think the third largest business in New York City is the cultures, cultural arts. Uh, you know, you have banking, you have Wall Street, you know, that kind of thing. And, and yet they understood the billions and billions of dollars that the arts brought into New York City. So they treat it professionally, right? And it takes a while. You can, you can say, all right, you have, a, you have somebody running a city say, we're going to do this. But you got to have the, the, you know, two million people that are surrounding this area to sort of buy into that and, and say, all right, there is, there, there is a difference between the person that, that uh, has, has, has just decided to start making art and the person that's been doing it all their life. Uh, so that, you know, it's a major commitment. Uh, uh, somebody who's, who's not only been doing it all their life, but live off of it, that, that becomes a major, a, a major um, accomplishment. And I think it's, it's good for young artists to see that that is possible. When I was in when I was an undergraduate, my mother my mother's reaction was, "I want you to do what you want, but I don't want you to starve." And she continued that kind of mindset about my being an artist up till what ten years ago or so, a little bit more a little bit more than ten years ago. Um, it, it, it was. It, it was something she she never quite got her head around the fact that I could make a living off of this, and you know, and and I was lucky that I had two teachers at USF that when I said when they asked me what I was going to do when I graduated, I'm going to go to New York and I want to become successful. And I said you can do that. This was back in '67 when people said you can't do it. You might as well say you're going to Hollywood and become a movie actor. So I mean, but to to get that kind of encouragement and then the Maybe believe them. I don't know. I, I didn't do it that way. I went to Washington D.C. and and stepped up to to mm-hmm. New York to see if I could could work professionally with professional artists that I knew of before in Washington D.C. I think that what Robert's talking about um, really is something that crosses many many disciplines. I think there's a a view in our culture now. And I think it may come from um, this whole new entrepreneurial push that people can do whatever they want and they can quickly become a success. And entrepreneurial what, celebrity ship, <laughs> right? And what Roberts described is is very similar to my life. You have to work through and work a lot to get to a point where you're a professional. And I think we see a lot that, you know, um, especially younger people, they, they want to skip that and become famous. And I think that that is something that permeates our culture mm-hmm. at the moment. And I think it's the um, one, the um, romanticism about being famous and a celebrity. I think it's also a lot that you see in the dot-com world where People look like, you know, overnight they become a big Mm -hmm. success and all of these, you know, shows on TV where you're discovered and all of a sudden. And not to know that that's a rarity and not the norm. And that even if you are chosen, the work that's involved in staying in that position and maintaining it, um, we don't see because it's not sexy or something. And that's one of the reasons why when we um, make art, 
we try to do it out in public, like making the sculptures. And people have remarked to us about that, mm-hmm. that, you know, we don't, they don't really understand what it takes to make a piece of art because what they see is the final project sure, sure. and instead of the process. And we have, in our Chattanooga sculpture, we have that long series and we showed it once. And it was Lothar Uhl, who recently has passed away, was a great supporter of the arts in St. Petersburg. He was just fascinated. He said, you should show that all the time because people don't understand how how much it takes to make something. You know the timeline from beginning to end, loading the car, putting our dogs in it, stopping at a rest stop so they could go. <laughs> and and, and uh, the final day when everybody that worked on the project was standing underneath the project. You know, and uh, so it, well, it was tech, what, eight months? Yeah, or? we would get photographs from people who were walker-bys, you know, people that walked by that were constantly involved in, in, in our building. They couldn't participate because it was, there was welding going on, so it was an OSHA site. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had to wear safety gear when we were in there as well. So, uh, but, you know, it, it, they, they were committed to the project. The most difficult part of every project is getting the contract signed and making sure that we feel secure in what we have promised to do and whoever on the other side of the contract feels like they are secure in what they're getting. And that's a hard thing to work out. And when you're working with a government like a city or a county or a state, there's all sorts of regulations and requirements that um, sometimes make it more difficult than easy than if you're working on a private commission. I mean, making art like this is practical. You, You know, there's this romantic idea of artists and this and that, but basically you have that, but then you have to make it. You have to know it can stand up, it meets requirements, you can pay for it, um, it's going to last. There's so many practical considerations. And I think that one thing people don't understand is a budget. So there are a lot of costs in making a big project. And one of the things that happens a lot is artists don't budget it correctly, and then they end up making no money or paying their own money. And that's something that has to definitely not happen for any artist um, because artists are like any other professional, lawyers, doctors, um, CEOs, or whatever. Um, We have to pay rent and tax and all of that. So one of the things in terms of doing um, a big project like this, if you do public art or private commissions, I mean, you have to manage, you have to be a project manager. You have to have a budget. You have to be able to manage your money. And in a way, you have to do it because otherwise you have to hire someone out of your budget to mm-hmm. do that. And the more people you hire to do these things, the less money can go into making it. So when you have a big budget, it ends up not being a lot of money that actually goes into making the art because you have to have lots of insurance. You have to have engineers. You have to you know, pay for studios, you have to pay the materials, you have to pay a fabricator, you have to pay an installer, you have to get permits, you have to do on and on and on and on, maybe pay to close a road. 
So there's all of this peripheral stuff that's essential to making it work, but all of that comes out of your budget. Um, and I think that that, in terms of art, is something that a lot of people who aren't involved don't understand. It, they think, why, why would an artist get that much money? Um, it's just like an architect or, an, or a developer. Um, it's just a, it just is our, often our perception that art is this easy thing to do that anyone can do. And, you know, you do it out of love. And, it almost uh, seems, though, you know, have to ask is like, why not just go back to painting? <laughs> well, we, we do that. The, the thing is, is that even though we do these very large projects, we're, we're really a design team, and uh, this isn't made in a vacuum either, right? And so we have to continue our creativity, and we're not always just going from project to project to project. I mean, which we could, but, you know, it's, it's, there, there are lulls. And uh, in, in between that, we supplement things. Uh, we, we inform ourselves with what we do painting-wise. So. Following the Richmond project, we did a a, a, a painting show in Richmond, uh, sort of about what the Richmond project was, and we did that in last December, and um, it was very well received, and, and you know sold some things and things like that. Did some very large pieces, um, and uh, here because of the space available and and maybe the market here, um, you know we have professional price points for our paintings. And so a, a large painting here would be out of, out of the question, I think, for a lot of people. And, uh, but doing smaller paintings, we can bring our price points down and, and introduce ourselves maybe more to the community, uh, the community of collectors, which we hope is building. I mean, that's something that has to happen is this art awareness that goes, you know, that, that has to go hand in hand with well, you have young artists moving here. You have mid-career artists moving here. You, you've got to have young collectors, mid-career collectors, and, and, and things like that. That That's also the responsibility of a community. Um, and we can help that by, you know, not putting a, an out-of-price painting show in, in you know, where, where people are going to just have tremendous sticker shock. Um, over that, you know, and we can't help that, you know, like it, it, it's an accumulative effect of market value that you have over a lifetime as an artist. You can't have a show up north and say, all right, I'm going to have a show down here where the same paintings are being sold for a quarter of the, a quarter, you can't do that because that gets up to there and then people are, you know, that's unethical as an artist, so you can't, can't do that kind of stuff. It's immoral. <laughs> you ask the question, why don't we just do the paintings and prints and not do these big projects? And that's a really good question. Um, and I can't imagine not doing the big projects. Um, I think it's, it's the way we think. I think it fits with this conceptual eye we have to looking at places. And even when we do painting shows, where we curate the shows to create a place so everything's connected. And I think it's just the way, I know it's the way I think about things. Um, and I'm always organizing things, to, you know, how they relate. And so 
I think that's really the art we do. I, yeah, I, the very large scale projects are, are, are sort of one aspect of who we are and, and doing the, the painted images or the two dimensional images, prints or whatever, is another aspect of who we are. We're, you know, we, our, our imagery, our content is multi-layered. It's not one meaning. I mean, the way we paint, it's multi-layered. It's not one color. Uh, so there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of, uh, um, you know, we've, we've alluded to layers before of information or, or whatever. Structure. Structure. And um, I think that's very much a part of who we are. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like food, you know, like you, you know, I love a big bowl of spaghetti and, and, and a salad. And I, I always joke, your co says, when do you want for dinner? Big bowl of spaghetti and some salad. We never eat it. Yeah, maybe once yeah, every four months, something like that. But that's that's a thing, you know. But uh, if you if you ate that every day, you wouldn't want it anymore. And, and the, the the same thing with somehow or another doing two dimensional work and doing three dimensional work brings you into a whole different set of involvement. Two dimensional work, you are really in control of your universe. You don't have to adhere mm -hmm. to any laws of anything. You can, I mean, you just go over here to the Dali and see, you can float things and do all sorts of stuff uh, image-wise. But when you make it three-dimensional, when you make a sculpture of it, you have to be aware of, of physics. You have to be aware that you're in the universe. Gravity works, and mm -hmm. there's structure, and there's this, and there's that. So they're, they're both in, in, in orbitally satisfying things to deal with. And quite often, during the course of a day, you might start out doing one and end up doing the other, right? So, so I, I think that's an important part of a balance, I think, about being creative. And you can apply that to content as well. And, and I think that's what we spend a lot of time doing. We pick our imagery based on, on this kind of multi-layered. When you think about a painting, you can think about, okay, I'm going to do this painting, but then you have to think about where's it going to go? How's it going to hang? Then all of a sudden you are looking at a place. So we know that the wall you put a painting on changes how the painting looks. Mm -hmm. What's around it changes it. Early on, I remember in the I guess it was either the 60s or the 70s, there was a long discussion about gallery walls being white. And so, you know, if it wasn't white, the painting, you know, looked differently. Now you look at museums and the walls are different colors. And that color influences how you look at the painting. Um, we did a project uh, commissioned for um, USF St. Pete um, where we did... Um, four paintings that were a unit and then another big painting. And what we did with those paintings is we embedded them in the wall so mm. that they became part of the building rather than just hanging on the wall. So it created it as part of the place. Sure. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm looking around this room and seeing, you know, framing. Framing a painting is so difficult uh, because... It changes how you will see the painting, what color, how it limits it. If you don't have a frame on it, you have an expanse. 
And one of the things about framing I've never understood is you go to these frame shops and they give you a little corner. It's like, how do I know what that's going to look like? So you have to like, you there you don't have enough evidence to choose. Sure. So my, it's the one thing I really don't like to do because I'm like leaping into this world where I guess I like more control. But I think that when you're never in a situation where other things aren't influencing you. Um, and for me, I think one of the reasons I think about this is growing up, like all of us do, having to choose what clothes to wear. So your body's like your sight, and then you have color-shape relationships going on. And you're really thinking about how this physical entity, um, your sight and its structure, works with the clothes you put on how your hair looks, all sorts of things, what glasses you wear, what earrings you wear, how you, you know, your haircut. Um, that, I think, is the first place, at least for me, where I experimented in creating a place. Well, I think uh, I used to teach. Uh, when I lived in New York City, I taught in Washington, D.C., so I'd, I'd go back and forth. And uh, uh, I remember a lot of the, the painting students, you know, you know, I was trained as a mid-century abstractionist, and uh, uh, there was all this, strong, this romanticism about, you know, when do you, knowing when to stop, like that poem, you know, like, uh, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know when I'm supposed to stop, because there's no, there's no end point in those kind of action paintings. But then there was also the thing, what's your favorite painting? And the answer would be the one I'm working on. Mm -hmm. But that's wrong, you know, in, in a way. Uh, you know, I can see that as a, a, a some, some level of the thing. But what, what we would do, and, and when I, I, I ran the BFA program, and so we, it, it was a, a private art school, so the, the students were going to leave there and become artists. They, they weren't really interested in going to graduate school. And uh, they, uh, their, their exit show was one in which they had to curate themselves. And uh, uh, they weren't allowed to do just everything they did during the semester and just throw it up on the wall. They had to really think about it. And they were, they were, they were graded on, on their ability to curate. And, and what we were trying to teach them was, even though you're finished with that painting, what you do with it afterwards is very, very important. How do you hang it next to the next painting? You know, how, how does that read? And uh, I remember one time I was doing that lesson with some of the people, and I... I I was still very young, and, and I, was in a, I was in a drawing show at Moore College of Art in Philadelphia. And, and I remember I went there, and there was my drawing, and there was a Picasso drawing on this side, and there was a de Kooning drawing on that side. And I just sort of went, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and it was the relationship of where you were. And all of a sudden, I felt really important. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm right there next to a Picasso and a de Kooning. And so what's next to your what's next to your art reveals what your art is. Why did they put my art between those two things? I mean, there was some particular reason for that. I don't know. Uh, I was still in my, I'm just barely out of graduate school mode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and thinking that. But the relationship of where it was and it was was very important. So how you take your work curate it, in other words, reduce it down somewhat. Say, I love this painting, but it doesn't belong in this show, and put it in there. And, um, you know, that is extending the life of that painting beyond just the act of making it. 
And so many people get into that. Uh, a lot of a lot of young art students, you know, like that. I got in trouble at the University of Georgia as as I was the the Lamar Dodd Chair, which I was brought in to 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 expose the students to professional thinking about art, rather than my being a faculty member that's worried about whether they're going to graduate or not. Right. So they're they're supposed to see it that way. So I remember in a in a a graduate seminar in drawing, I brought up the word practicality. Oh my God! You think I was throwing curse words at me? I mean, because they were into postmodernist thought and all this kind of that, you know. And and that was I'm sort of there. What? I mean, I was completely innocent about the thing, you know. Like, I was thinking, well, I got to go through it all the time. <laughs> I got to worry about that all the time, you know. And yet they're thinking it's a bad word. It's, they're they're not supposed to think it because you know, they're supposed to be off in this theoretical world that has a you know is, is lacking a lot of reality and it's going to be harsh reality for some of them. And that's why this school had the wisdom to bring in Lamar Dodd chairs who mm-hmm. are practicing artists. But uh, some of the other faculty didn't like our freewheeling. <laughs> well, it seems like the practicality though, you can trace it from your early days as a teacher to the gateway trio project. If, if you didn't have the practical element in your thought process and your planning, yeah. So, uh, yeah, when you make something three dimensional, you have to engineer yeah. it. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to a conversation with Carol Mickett and Robert Stackhouse. You can find photos of their work and a link to Mickett Stackhouse Studios on our website, creativepinellas.org. We'll be talking in another episode about their Gateway Plaza project, where they designed several large scale pieces inspired by a site in Richmond, Virginia, and a building was constructed around their artwork. You've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley, our wonderful production team. And you can hear more of their great work and some wonderful conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists at our website, creativepinellas.org. This is Barbara St. Clair. Thank you for listening.